Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Matthew Barzen, the author of The Power of Giving Away Power, How the Best Leaders Learn to Let Go. Matthew is a former U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom and Sweden and served as President Obama's national finance chair. He's always been fascinated with how we can stand out and fit in at the same time. In the conversation, Matthew and I discuss the constellation mindset, downsides of the traditional pyramid mindset, the importance of broadening our perspective, why we need to embrace uncertainty, how to think about wisdom, and much more. Please welcome the wise and gracious Matthew Barzen. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time. Look forward to it. Well, I have to say, I absolutely loved this book that you just put out. How does it feel to have the power of giving away power out in the world? Well, it is really nice to hear things like you just said. Uh, because as you know, I mean, you you work on this thing for a long time, and it's a wonderful collaborative process. But by the time it actually comes out and hits the bookshelves or people's ears through Audible or whatever, it's been a long time since I was writing it. And so it's excited to kind of, exciting to kind of re-engage and, and talk about what resonates. And then I think equally important uh, what doesn't and, and where it misses or what people are left thinking, yeah, but, and I love that stuff. <laughs> a, a number of years ago, I used to li- listen and read a lot of leadership books. I, I don't pick up as many leadership books, and, and that happens to be the category that this falls in, but I, I really see it as a, as a life wisdom, a, a parenting, a leadership, how to be a better human, how do you categorize this book that you put out it's uh as you can tell i love music because you can't see the video here but i have my record collection behind me uh for inspiration and moral support (laughs) and of course in the music business and i'm not remotely musical i just love music you know these categories and i'm sure that performing artists hate to be put in these boxes but when you're looking for music it does these labels are kind of helpful not the record label but the sort of hey this is country or this is indie or this is whatever it might be r&b and um and the same is true evidently with books because i i wouldn't have classified it if it were up to me as probably anything because i sort of approached it in the way you described it like i think it can be pulled into people's lives in a professional setting in a personal setting um but the smart people who've published lots of books uh (laughs) convinced me that hey you got to pick a primary one and go there, and then people can sort of pull it into their lives other places. So leadership is it, and uh, there we are. <laughs> well, I love it. Before you were writing books and putting this out, you were uh, a U.S. ambassador to the U.K. in Sweden. And I was curious how that role as U.S. ambassador maybe shaped your perspective in, in the writing of the book. Yeah, so I was a, I got to learn from this amazing group of, in both Sweden and the UK, and back in Washington, career foreign service professionals. And these men and women have done, um, you know, 30 plus years in some cases of service all around the world for our country and for the world. And so I got to learn a lot about diplomacy from them. Uh, And I think if I had to sum it up and how it informed the book to your question, I think that the, the act of practicing diplomacy, and I love that that's the phrase, practice, um, that you learn to become comfortable with uncomfortable 
places and spaces and sort of the awkward pauses in conversations, that a lot of potential and a lot of potential energy kind of lives in those gaps. Mm. A central big idea in, in the book is this constellation mindset. Um, I, I was not familiar with the with the history behind this radiant constellation. I was wondering if you could spend a few minutes and provide a bit of background on it. Sure. It's always tricky in an audio format, so you'll have to guide me, Joshua, on behalf of your wonderful listeners, um, how it works without visual aids. I guess if if people who are listening in America have a dollar bill handy, that would that would help um, or a U.S. passport. Because the, the image of a constellation comes from the formation of our national logo, which dates back to July 4th, 1776. And it turns out, without getting too into the weeds, that it took longer to design this logo than it did to win the war. And it was a two-sided logo. And it's actually, it wasn't called the logo. It's called the Great Seal of the United States. And both sides of that logo are on the back of the current $1 bill. And... For the purposes of the book, the, the most familiar image from the dollar bill, and I've gotten into this, so I ask everybody, if you asked unaided, hey, what's an image on the back of the dollar bill, other than the number one, people will usually say, oh, that weird pyramid thing with the all-seeing eye on top, and that is, and it's the back of the logo, and the pyramid represents sort of strength and durability, um, but for the front of the logo, they picked... They have the American Eagle. They picked early on a motto that's familiar to everyone, either in its Latin form, e pluribus unum, translated as from many one or out of many one. And this is the interesting part, that uh, they chose as a symbol for how could you be at once many things and still one thing. These 13 stars originally asymmetrically with placed different sizes um, with these brilliant rays of sunshine coming out behind it. And they called it the radiant constellation. And that's how we can think of being many and one. We're each an individual star uh, and yet part of something bigger, a constellation. And that's how you can get unity without demanding uniformity and how you can get the power of diversity without succumbing to division. And if you think about it, you could have said, well, from many bricks, one pyramid, which I think is sort of a depressing way of looking at the world. And that would mean you either fit in to this very precise scheme or you're left out. But a constellation leaves room, room for more stars, room for more combinations of stars. So that, I think, is basically the symbol for interdependence. And interdependence, even though July 4th, 1776, we celebrate as Independence Day, and I get that. Any band of revolutionaries can declare independence. I think the best thing America has done, and we, fall, we fell short of it back then, we still fall short of it, but it's worth shooting for, is interdependence. How you can be free together. Not free from one another, not free separately, not free individually, but fully free through and with other people. And that's what that constellation represents. And and so that's the help I find helpful. I hope listeners find it and readers find it helpful. A way to think about yourself and those around you. Yes, I'm a star and distinct as myself, but you also are a star. Um, and how can we make useful and powerful combinations between us that we never could all on our own? And contrast that with, I think, what is the predominant mindset that so many of us have before we're given an alternative, which is that pyramid mindset which is the world of top-down. But also, and we might get into this, it's also the world of bottom-up. Mm. It's the world of in-out, up-down, win-lose, ranking-rating, sorting-sifting, all of that. And we, we've gotten pretty good at the habits of that, but there's a cost to that mindset and I think very real limits that we see as I look around the world today and our country and that we could find a more helpful guide by thinking of ourselves and those around us in a constellation mindset. Before we get into the pyramid mindset, I would love to 
highlight or, or discuss for a couple minutes here that the term falling short of, of interdependence. Um, I think sometimes thinking about that or may, maybe someone listening, it, it may sound a bit down to, to fall short. But I don't know. I was thinking a little bit about some of the really meaningful tasks in our, our life as a as a parent or a spouse or whatever it may be, some of these meaningful things, it, it seems we we do fall short, but it's still that meaningful, it's kind of an optimistic thing. There's there's always work to be done. There's always steps in that direction. How do you think about falling short? I do. I mean, it's... Once one... Once you've kind of adopted this constellation mindset, which to me didn't come early or particularly naturally, I've sort of learned it along the way, watching these amazing leaders, some of whom I got to meet, many of whom are long since dead, but who could who had this different way of looking at themselves and, and the people around them, who, by the way, went on to, and I hope we get into this, went on to create some of the most impactful organizations and innovations the world has ever seen when they adopted this mindset. Um, once you do that, you start to look at um, other sayings, other kind of cliches that we repeat, either verbally or just with our actions and with our habits, all of a sudden seem to look strange. So here's one that gets at your question, um, often used at graduation speeches, but I think all the listeners could fill in the following. Uh, we often tell young people, life isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. What? So everyone says marathon, and we know what we mean. And the wisdom we think we're passing on is, hey, not everything is about what's happening tomorrow or what's happening in the corporate sense of, you know, next financial results, um, next financial quarter. Um, And there is wisdom in, hey, think about time differently. But what I'm struck by is how similar sprints and marathons are to one another, that we're basically passing on not so subtly, that life is a race in one set direction all by yourself. Mm. You know, and and that's where falling short, that phrase is kind of short of the finish line, short of a preset goal. Um, And so if you look at it in that context, it, it has all this negative baggage. If you look at it in more of a constellation mindset, it it doesn't have that kind of binary uh, downside to it. Um, you know, if you miss a connection, back to what I learned in diplomacy, I mean, most of, I remember meeting a great stand-up comic who, I'd never met a stand-up comic, and I love stand-up comedy, and I said, well, how many, if you're telling 10 new jokes, right, you haven't tried them before, 10 new jokes at a small comedy club in a city like Louisville, where I'm dialing in from, or a city like Liverpool in England, how many get a laugh? And he he's, has a big Netflix special. He's like a top comedian. And he said, oh, I'm really good at it now. As I get as many as three laughs for every 10 jokes I say. <laughs> so now you could say he's falling short, but that's not how he thinks about it. He's just like, I'm learning. So by the time he does his Netflix special, he's 10 out of 10, 9 out of 10, something like that. Yeah. So he's reframed how he thinks about it. And I... With all my diplomatic blunders, I, I thought of it like stand-up comedy. <laughs> I love the example. And another example that's in the book, one of my favorites that I've, I've heard before, and you provided quite a bit of a detail on Wikipedia uh, and, and Microsoft. Could you talk about that and, and maybe connect the dots uh, of Constellation there? Yeah, it's a, it's a fun little quiz to, to play with. You have to be sort of old like I am. I just turned 50. So if you're much younger than 50, you wouldn't remember this. But um, Harvard Business School wrote a case study a while back about the company that went digital and beat Encyclopedia Britannica to win the Encyclopedia Wars. Now, if you ask any group of people, especially young people today, everyone will be like, oh, that's easy. It's Wikipedia. But that's not who Harvard Business Review picked as the winner. Sorry, Harvard Business School. They picked Microsoft Encarta, which for something like nine months won, sort of in air quotes, you know. It, it bested Britannica. But 
Encarta is out of business now. Britannica doesn't exist in nearly the same form it used to. And what we all actually use in our lives is this thing created by a small team of people led by Jimmy Wales, a commodities trader born in Alabama. Imagine this. I mean, imagine his pitch. I'm going to go take on one of the oldest companies in the world, Britannica, the richest company in the world by market capitalization, Microsoft. And here's my idea. I'm going to create a uh, volunteer-driven website where I pay nobody to contribute to it and I charge nobody to use it. Who's with me? Right? And and we'll get into it in the book. But um, originally, uh, it was a big... It, it failed. And it wasn't called Wikipedia. It was called Newpedia. And it, it's like the Wikipedia you know with one really important difference. He thought, well, okay, nobody knows us. We're up against Microsoft and Britannica. Um, I'll still have volunteer amateurs sort of do it um, for no money, but I am paranoid that there'll be a mistake. So I'm going to have a 10-step process before any article gets published. And at the end of a year, he had only 18 articles on the website. So, like, this isn't working, right? I mean, his competitors had 500,000. So there's just no meaningful way you could ever do that. Then someone on his team suggested, hey, Jimmy, what if you give up control? What if you stop being so freaked out about mistakes? And what if you use this new technology called Wiki that lets Joshua write a sentence Jane come in and flesh it out with a full paragraph. Someone else come in later, basically collaborative writing. Um, And lo and behold, they said, well, we might as well try it. They did. And after that first year of the Wikipedia approach, they had 18,000 articles. Fast forward 20 years, it is the number one knowledge, human knowledge transfer engine, as someone put it, in the history of the world. It's in 240 languages. It's 5 million plus articles in English alone. It's remarkable. It's not perfect. It has plenty of mistakes in it, too. But so does Britannica and so did Encarta. But it's self-correcting. And so I think there's lots to learn and be inspired about. And it all began by giving up power. Power to be in control of every last thing and be in control of the process. Instead, it was open-ended and let lots of people contribute. I was really surprised to read that Jimmy came into it with a traditional kind of pyramid mindset, I guess, if you will, uh, and then made that pivot. Any insight into what enabled that kind of drastic shift? I think, um, well, necessity and realizing that the other way just, it's really bad math. I mean, 18 plus 18 plus 18, you just can't get there. Um, And I think in other examples, uh, the largest commercial organization in the history of the world, um, which is we now call Visa, um, was was similarly a wonderful uh, guy still alive named D. Hawk, who came up with this. He was a mid-level manager at a mid-sized bank in a mid-sized city. And he convinced Bank of America, the big, huge bank, to give up its power and to create this new system where it couldn't boss around all its affiliates, it would participate with his with tiny banks and medium-sized banks on exactly the same terms, no preferential treatment, and they would compete and cooperate in this new system that we all kind of take for granted now, but was really radical and was brought on by the fact that the other system the, that before that was forced cooperation within a pyramid and then forced competition's competition between the pyramids. And it was leading to millions of dollars of losses and four-week delays and people getting paid. It was a nightmare. So having a debacle on your hands or something really not working is a good motivation to try something new. So how about the pyramid mindset? How would you define it? I, I think there are three ways, Joshua. I think there's an obvious way a slightly less obvious way, and then I think the most pernicious, which is kind of how it lives within us. So the the first one is sort of out there, meaning you could point to an or a big organ a big top down hierarchical organization, or not even big, just but it's an organization, um, and you uh, 
you uh, set goals. You so just picture a pyramid with the top person at the top, and then executive vice presidents and vice presidents and directors, and you know, like a corporate org chart. Which, by the way, looks like a big pyramid, big triangle. Um, and there's a place for pyramids and that mindset. It it is good at accomplishing finite goals. You kind of set the goal, you work your way back, and then you divide up responsibility. Um, and that works to a point. Um, and all these pyramids, I think they have usually a top to them. They have a point they're driving towards, and then they kind of divide up the labor. Um, and what you start to discover is that there is a limit and there's kind of a, a load or a burden that comes with that. Um, that once you have a top, you automatically have a bottom. And once you have a point, it is pretty easy to kind of lose your purpose. And once you divide up the tasks, that, that act of division kind of starts to lead into silos and divisions within the company and within teams. And so that's why, so if that's the first sort of obvious one, when people have realized the limits of sort of bosses barking orders from the top, we all kind of got the memo that that's not in favor over the last few decades. So what we naturally do is we say, I know, I'll do the opposite. We're going to be bottom up or we'll do a bottom-up initiative to get product ideas. The problem with bottom-up, though, and it sounds better, it feels better for a moment, but think about it. If I, if I do a bottom-up exercise in a company of any size or an organization of any size, you are forcing members of your team to be in only one of two positions, either looking at their colleagues and thinking they're beneath them or looking at their colleagues and thinking that they're beneath them. Right? So you're either above someone else or below someone else. It's not a new shape. It's the exact same shape. We're stuck in the pyramid. We're just running it in reverse order. And then the final point about <clears throat> the pyramid mindset is if we want to escape the pyramid and we say, well, okay, I, I reject top down and bottom up. I know. I'll just be on my own. Hmm. You know, and so pyramids kind of the, the mindset of dependence. I'll be independent, just me. And what I think we've discovered, and technology has sort of we've used it to help us get more and more independent, is it leads to alienation, it leads to isolation and loneliness, and strangely, it ends up being really another form of dependence. We just turn ourselves into little mini pyramids um, of dependence only on ourselves. And, and this final point, I think, is the, is the trickiest and the most damaging. And, and the way I try to bring this to life is if I asked, if, if there were 10 of us on a Zoom right now, or live in person, better yet, and you asked 10 people, okay, what's the opposite of winning and losing? What's the opposite of winning? Everyone says losing. You say, okay, great, I agree. What's the opposite of winning and losing? Nine out of 10 of us, this is unscientific, but I've asked hundreds of people this question. Nine out of 10 of us basically say, I don't know, not playing, right? So the opposite of winning, losing is sitting it out. One out of 10 of us, when asked that question, what's the opposite of winning and losing? They say playing or living or being or all the other things we do in life. This is to your earlier point. All the other things we do in life that don't lend themselves to winning and losing. You do not win your career. You do not win parenting. Uh, to your point earlier, you fall short in all these areas, but it's a journey and it's, you know, it's just not a win and lose thing. You do not win a marriage, although if you try to, you might very well lose one. And so the, the, the hopeful bit for me is that once the nine out of 10 of us hear that one person who says playing or living or laughing or loving, our kind of shoulders go down and we're like, oh, right. Right. But the pyramid within, our initial reaction says so much. If I'm not winning and losing, I'm doing nothing. And there are real costs to that. It's really Personally, politically, economically. It's really fascinating that one person sees it 
a bit differently. Any thoughts of what might be some some common attributes or experiences to that helps that one person to see it a bit different? Because the other nine, once they become aware of it, it uh, it makes sense. They see it as well. Any thoughts there? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I'd love to explore further, and if listeners have ideas, I'd love to hear them because I haven't done, as I said, unscientific. I mean, it would be, but you know, be, being out here talking about the book over these last few weeks, I, I definitely have seen, let's call it the one in 10, because they say, look, I've been living my life. I didn't have the words constellation or that image for it, but this is the way I've conducted myself in my professional life or in my personal life. That's one group. Then you've got the group that basically doesn't do that, but they're open to it because they've seen firsthand the limitations of the pyramid mindset. And they may have achieved good things with it, but they've just seen where it runs out of steam or where it, uh, and I'll talk about power in a moment because I think it all kind of hinges on power. Um, and then there is, there's a third group that is just really, if, if, if you picture them, it's hard to tell on Zoom, if they were sitting in a, in a speech, they would have arms folded and legs crossed and head shaking like, nope, I don't buy it. Mm. And it's a real threat because it is a threat to a lot of sort of sacred cows that we hold dear. In the uh, the classic Good to Great, which you, you, you reference in the book, I think of that paradox of the level five, the mm. unwavering humility and determination. Do you see any paradoxes that that come about maybe for someone with a constellation mindset yeah i loved it so that's jim collins's great book it's probably the book that i bought and gave away the most in my life when i read it 20 years ago it really resonated with me and i loved it and now i look at it with different eyes i think it is really telling that the combination so he's he went into this effort determined not to write a book about successful CEOs, because he was so, I think, appropriately turned off by the 1990s glorification of a certain type of American CEO who'd be on the cover of business magazines, standing triumphantly all alone, like the hero. I did it. Sort of implicit, like, by myself, because I'm so smart. So he didn't like that type any more than I do. Um, So then he discovers a very different kind of leader. And he's baffled by how could you be at once humble and determined? But that, I mean, that doesn't seem to me, once you adopt the constellation mindset, that doesn't seem to be such an odd combination. And so he calls it level five because he doesn't want to give it a real name because he thinks it's so mysterious that if you called it servant leadership, you'd, you'd, that's kind of a loaded, important, powerful concept, but you'd have that idea. And he's like, no, no, no. And the telling part is he says, he interviews all these level five, so-called level five leaders, and um, to a person, they say that they do not want to be put on a pedestal. And yet, when you read the book, and I recreate it in my book, he draws a pyramid, and he does level one at the bottom, level two, level three, and the top of the pyramid, the pedestal, is level five. So he's put them right where they don't want to be put. And, and he says, and I, I, again, I really love the book, and there's so much wisdom in it. He says, we kept trying to isolate in their, and this is real, isolate in their management laboratory. Those are real words, a management laboratory, what this special it is in these people. And what I think is you will never find it in a laboratory. And the reason you won't find it in a laboratory is it doesn't exist in that person. It exists between people on a team. That's where all the magic lives. And it's kind of like that, that same stand-up comedian friend shared with me another story when I met him. And he said, you know, jokes are strange things. If you play a song and nobody likes it, it's still a song. And if you put on a play and everybody walks out, it's still a play. But if you tell a joke and nobody laughs, it's just a sentence. This is Jimmy Carr, a British comedian. And I thought that was so profound. And I thought some famous person, you know, did Aristotle say that? Um, I doubt Aristotle would have said that, but and he's like, no, no, I just said it. And think about that. That to me is a way in which leadership is a joke. Good leadership, level five leadership is a joke. 
it, the comedian does his or her part. The audience member does his or her part. Together, they made a joke, or else it's just a sentence. It's that mutuality, that stuff that happens in between. It's relational, and that's the magic of a good team, the magic of constellations, these connections between, between us all. I love that. You talk about a, a few things in the book. I, I don't know if you'd call them attributes, but these, the idea of expect to be needed, expect to need others, and expect to change. I, I want to provide a couple examples and, and get your thoughts on it. Uh, Chris Lowney, a business writer, he's wrote a couple books on the Jesuits. It's this religious order founded by St. Ignatius. Um, and they do a couple things that seem to, to get it, to get it uh, I guess, a couple of these. The Jesuits, they do a, a pilgrimage. It's a 14-day pilgrimage, around 500 miles or so, and, and they do it with no food or, or resources, only on you know the good grace of, of fellow humans along this. Um, that seems to be a good example of someone getting a deeper realization of needing others, really mm. experiencing that. How can we, in our everyday life, maybe gain a, a bit of realization of, of this need for others? It seems the expect to be needed might be a little easier than the expect sure, to need yeah. others aspect. Yeah, well, it, it's a great question. I mean, I'll take it sort of away from the pilgrimage trail into the mundane Monday morning meeting that great. many of us have. And I'm guided in, in, in this response by this amazing uh, woman um, who the name Peter Drucker might be familiar to some listeners, probably the most quoted um, leadership thinker of the 20th century. Uh, Harvard Business School asked 200 top business gurus, um, people like Jim Collins, I think, people like Stephen Covey, you know, great leaders and thinkers. Who was your guru? And number one on the list is Peter Drucker. So he's ever, the guru's guru. So it turns out he reveals towards the end of his career that he had a guru all along. And no one's ever heard of this, or I certainly hadn't, um, Mary Parker Follett. And by the way, she's on no one's list of the guru's guru. And yet she was the guru's guru's guru. I'll stop saying the word guru. And um, she wrote 100 years ago. She was the most sought after. She kind of gave a viral TED Talk of her day. Um, most sought after speaker on the, on the sort of business leadership circuit. She had spent 25 years on the front lines of social work in, outside of Boston where she grew up. And for our purposes, she was writing 100 years ago, America and the world is coming out of a global pandemic. Everywhere she looks, she sees social, economic, and racial division. She sees fear of big business. She sees fear of government overregulation of big business. Sounds kind of familiar. And she said, all of these things can be really daunting, but we can actually do something about it that's quite small, tactical, and practical. And she's like, it can happen at your next Monday morning meeting. And she says, look, wherever people are gathered, whenever you have a meeting, there's four possible outcomes, and only one of them is worthwhile. Bad outcome number one, you try to win it. Joshua shows up, you know, you're trying to sell the rest of us on your idea, and hopefully we all say yes. Um, she's like, why do you even invite other people to the meeting? Bad outcome number two, you just acquiesce and you just let someone else have their day. They seem pushy or whatever. That's no good. You're depriving the group of a unique voice, namely your own. Bad outcome number three, and this is harder. Bad outcome number three, and it's harder because we're all taught we ought to try to achieve it, not try to avoid it. Uh, that bad outcome number three is compromise. And Mary Parker Follett says the problem with compromise is that at best you get a partial victory, which leads to, but nothing more than that, which leads to the only worthwhile outcome of a meeting is co-creation. That that group of people of whatever size um, has made something together. So there's a reciprocal obligation. You made the point, Joshua, that is probably of those three expectations, expect to be needed, expect to need others, and expect to be changed. Expect to be needed, for some of us, may come quite naturally. Others who maybe have felt historically not listened to it might be harder. But in any case, 
that obligation to to be needed comes with a reciprocal obligation to leave that meeting just a little bit different than you entered it. And that way, the next meeting, the next Monday morning meeting, when you bring your full self, it's an enhanced self. It's not the same old self. Because if you keep bringing your same old self and your same old truth to every single meeting, you're not growing. The team's not growing. It seems like some of these ideas start with a perspective, a worldview, or however you would call it. Is that how you would how you would see it, Matthew? I do. I, I, I like the word, although there are others, I like the word mindset. And we talked about Aristotle um, earlier and, and a quote he didn't say. Um, a, a reader sent me, I'm trying to think, I just have it here somewhere. Um, I'll paraphrase it. Um, the soul cannot think without an image. The soul cannot think without an image. Mm. So even if we think we can, that's just what we naturally do. And so what image do you have in mind? And that's why if you have this pyramid image of up and down and I'm beneath people or people are beneath me, it leads to these habits that have their place but can be quite destructive. And if you have an image, let's say, of the constellation where, yes, I have, I know who I am and, and, um, and I look at other people around me as stars and I think, how can we make connections? That's just a different image you have in your mind. And the habits that come from that, which are the habits of interdependence, are quite different. Mm-hmm. And if I had to kind of oversimplify it, I would say the pyramid mindset whether it's top-down, whether it's bottom-up, or whether it's kind of you as a little pyramid of one trying to make a go of it in the world. Um, it, it is all about... Uh, it treats power as if it's a scarce resource. It's either lorded over others, it, or it's hoarded to yourself, or it's divvied up and shared. And... These other leaders with the constellation mindset, they said, no, 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 power isn't a scarce resource like something you mine, M-I-N-E, you know, um, I'm here in Kentucky, so like you don't mine it like coal. Um, It is something you make. Power is something you make, and you make it with other people sitting around a table. Mm. And it's not a scarce resource. And... You know, we talk in science sometimes about the conservation of energy, that in a closed system, thermodynamics, not my expertise. That's maybe true in science, in closed systems. In human interaction, that is absolutely not true. Human energy is smothered and killed, or better yet, kindled and created every time people are gathered. Which is it going to be for you and for your team next Monday? When you think of interdependence and constellations, I think of stars in the sky. Kind of once you see it, it's difficult to unsee. Hmm. In your work so so deeply into this, researching this, writing this book for many years, has this impacted the way you see the interdependence and, and constellations throughout the throughout the world, I guess? Totally. And I love that you made that point because there is nothing self-evident about Orion's belt, Mm. just to pick um, a shape in the sky. But like you said, once someone points it out to you, you you can't unsee it. And there's nothing inherent about it. Like the next generation won't obviously see it or call it that. And what I love about the constellation is like, hey, we might call it Orion's Belt, but you could do another configuration using those same set of stars that's useful for a different purpose, call it something else. And that doesn't negate the fact that we call it Orion's Belt. Someone else might call it something else. It, it's flexible and non-zero sum in in that way. Um, uh, it, it does weird things, though. It... it um, like I said earlier about the sprint and the marathon, one of the trickiest ones, and I've certainly some readers really uh, have wanted to engage in a fun way around this really famous speech um, that I was forced to memorize by my uncle, which is the famous Teddy Roosevelt, it's not the critic who counts. Um, 
and then it goes on. The credit belongs to the man, he says, man, who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood. Now, just to give a quick catalog of people who love that quote, um, John Senator John McCain loved it. Uh, President Barack Obama used it in his eulogy for Senator John McCain in one of these rare, beautiful, bipartisan moments of the last decade. Every Navy midshipman is asked to memorize it before uh, he or she graduates. Um, Brene Brown, her great work is all inspired by that. Nelson Mandela and LeBron James has it etched into his basketball shoes, right? I get it, right? But what I don't like, it frustrates me. And it frustrates me because it perpetuates this dichotomy that in that framework, which, by the way, is gladiatorial, you go into the arena and you fight it out, your face marred with dust and sweat and blood and, you know, win or lose, at least you tried. That's the whole point. And so if our choices are go in and fight it out alone or sit on the sidelines and be a bystander, I get it. You might as well go in the arena and win or lose. But I think there is a third option that is not presented to us in that formulation that we need a whole lot more of, which is not fight it out or sit it out. Pick one. Right. And this is the world of what if you played it through, worked it out, anything you might do with a team of people to make something together. That's not fighting and it's not sitting it out. And in fact, as you look around us, wherever you might be listening, you see around you the product of men and women who have made things together that we all benefit from. And why do we discount that? And why do we or frame it as a fight? And there are certainly things worth fighting for. And even more pernicious about that statement, it starts, it's not the critic who counts. And we're fortunate enough to live in a democracy. Of course the critic counts. Now, cranky critics are annoying, and if they're critical of you, it doesn't feel fun. But how we can integrate criticism to help um, change and make improvements is a huge part of how we grow as a country, as we, how we grow as a person at any scale. It's a really interesting point in the difficult thing of this both and thinking, seeing a, a, a bigger picture. Yeah, you know, it's um, when, I, when I served as ambassador to Sweden, uh, such an amazing country, one of the things, you know, home of, of Saab and Volvo. So one of their things they're very proud of is safe driving. And there's a great story, like in the late 60s, they switched from driving on the British side of the road to the way we do. Just like on one day, I forget, you know, one day they're like, when we're going to switch. I mean, they told everyone it was coming. And there were like no traffic accidents or fatalities on that day. It's just remarkable, right? So they take this stuff seriously. So I got to go visit um, this, I'm making up the name, but it's like the Swedish Safe Driving Institute or something like that. And they have all this state-of-the-art stuff. And they, I was watching these videos of uh, like head-mounted displays on actual drivers, right? And you may have done this in, in driver's education when you were in high school, but they have a little red X on the screen that marks where the driver's looking, okay? So you can see it. And there are these terrifying ones where the person driving is just staring at their lap, right? They're just looking at their phone. And you think, oh, my goodness. So it is pretty intuitive to every listener on this call that they call that distracted driving, and it will kill you, right? Okay. So if you do the opposite, this is the counterintuitive part. If you do the opposite of stare at your lap at your phone, and you look at the road ahead of you, and only at the road ahead of you, that too can kill you. And it's called fixated driving, and it creates what they call tunnel vision. Mm. And so the safe way of driving is that little red X, which marks where your eyes are looking. The little red X should be in front of you, yes, in the rear view mirror, in the side mirrors, way down in front of you in the road, into the side again, off to the side, right? The little red X should be moving every two seconds. And if you look at a scatter plot of what they call engaged driving, which is safe driving, Lo and behold, it makes this whole constellation of X's. Oh, wow. Which I love because that's, that's what it ought to be like. Our perspective, to your point, is look behind you to history, look ahead, way down the road, look to your left, look to your right. Because the pyramid mindset is the mindset of blinders. And you factor so much out in the pursuit of predictability and certainty, and it's dangerous. 
it's good in the short run, but not in the long run. That's a great analogy. I want to ask just a couple more questions. I'm really appreciative of your time, Matthew. Uh, one of the things that you write about in the book of, of these consolidated themes of commencement speeches, and you list five that NPR put together and give some, some rewrites. And for time's sake, I just want to touch on one. And it's hmm. embrace failure to embrace uncertainty. Why is that so important and how does that connect to a constellation mindset well the first in that order and i won't do all five for time's sake but it, but i think it relates so much to this one that the, the number one bit of advice in the npr categorization of hundreds of graduation speeches over the last 30 years the number one was change the world Right. And and that's kind of a big to tell young people, go ahead and change the world. And then the rest of them, of which embrace failure is one, all are kind of subtly emphasizing um, you're on your own um, in your efforts to change the world. So that seems like a pretty daunting set of like change the world all by yourself. You'll stumble. Don't worry about it. Keep going. It's kind of back to that sprint and marathon or the same thing. Just keep climbing the pyramid. You know, you'll make it there one day. Um and I think so much of the pretending that we do, and the first three words of the book are pretending is exhausting, pretending we know the right answer and working backwards from there. And this is true in, in personal lives and certainly in the workplace. And so much of leadership advice is sort of encouraging us to pretend we know more than we do. Um, and so in a practical, tactical way, if we could start more meetings, I don't know, just saying these five words, I don't know, we might, or I don't know, what if, dot, 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 or what if we, dot, 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 like, I don't care what comes after that, that language and body language of let's try to figure it out together, not some group hug, kumbaya, bad middle school science project. I mean, really, you know, really engage people and where they disagree and agree and try to go make something together. Um, that's okay. And, and the reason we stay stuck in the pyramid so much is that pretending is exhausting, yes, but there's something we fear worse than the exhaustion of pretending. And it's the fear of uncertainty. And all these great leaders that I was inspired by that created the internet, Wikipedia, Visa, Alcoholics Anonymous, they're not in the book, but I think Airbnb, some really interesting, uh, significant innovations and organizations came from this. Um, they don't fear uncertainty. They embrace it. And the not knowing is not a problem to be solved. It is the, the where the energy comes from. And that mindset shift, right away, you stop getting that tunnel vision of factoring everything out so you can at least be certain about this little piece. You embrace the uncertainty and move forward that way. I love it. And that's a great way to, to wrap it up. I've just got one kind of standard question that we ask all the, all the guests. This is in search of wisdom. How might you define wisdom, Matthew? Oh dear. That's a hard one, Joshua. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I remember my late father-in-law, who died way too early, a wonderful man named Owsley Brown. We, a friend of his came to dinner, and he made us go around at, after dinner and uh, share what uh, – he was a minister. And he said, what's the age of your soul? It's kind of an intense question. And I had just entered the family, so I was kind of um, – and uh, – and he said, and if you're not religious, you, you can think of it as if someone woke you up at two in the morning and just like deep down, what age are you? And it may be an age you've been. It may be an age you've never been. Hmm. And uh, my father-in-law had to go first. And so he said, I'll never, he said, I'm 47. Uh, and at the time he was probably 57. Um, he said, what I love about 47 is he's like, you have just enough wisdom learned by really doing things. And hopefully, it's so sad because he didn't have as much time as he should have left in his life. He's like, and hopefully you have enough time to do something useful and helpful with that wisdom. And so um, that doesn't exactly address the definition of wisdom. But I, I think of those 
wise um, words. And and he made whiskey for a living. And maybe there's a good way to close and gets at wisdom. He described to me how you make bourbon is what they do uh, and Tennessee whiskey. So you you're I did not know this at the time. Having grown up in Boston, I liked bourbon as much as the next guy, but I didn't know how it was made. And he said, well, there are three steps to make bourbon. And by the way, I think this is a great way to think about life. Step one, fermentation, right? You, you, you bubble up ideas. Um, and at the end of step one, you have what's called beer, but it's not the kind you can drink. Then he said step two is distillation, where you make things smaller in pursuit of something stronger and clearer and more potent. And he said, no, at the end of step two, you basically have vodka. And he said... And he said this with a great little twinkle in his eye. He said, I mean, you can make vodka in an afternoon, which was not a compliment, <laughs> right? You can make vodka in an afternoon. And then he said, do you know what the third step is? And I got it wrong. Um, I said, oh, I know, aging. He said, not quite. He said, time's part of it. But if you just put it in like a steel barrel, it would still be vodka four years later. Mm. It's time in the barrel, time in the charred wooden barrel. And the technical term for that third phase is maturation. And he said, so in that time, with heat and cold, you expand and contract. And that gives the liquid in there, that turns it from what looks like vodka into the, into the whiskey, and it gives it its color, its character, and its complexity. So in a long-winded answer to your question about wisdom, I would say it's a way of being able to take gratitude and resentment, agreement and disagreement, and not be afraid of those, the tension in those, knowing that that tension is the contraction of going in and out, in and out, and that gives each of us, each team, each country, color, character, and complexity. Mm. This has been really great, Matthew. I really appreciate it. I highly encourage everybody to pick up the book, The Power of Giving Away Power. Uh, where do you point people interested in, in learning more about you? Oh, well, uh, wonderfully. Um, because of the book, I actually uh, can now point you to a website, which is my easy-to-spell first name, hard-to-spell-last-name.com. So it's MatthewBarzen.com, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, and then Barzen. B-A-R-Z like zebra, U-N as in November. MatthewBarson.com. Um, you can find all the different places to get the book and uh, other things too, as well as a, like a free sample chapter if you want to check that out before diving in to get the audiobook or the hard copy. All right, great. We'll link all of that in the show notes. Highly encourage you to check it out. Matthew, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Joshua, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, please let Joshua know what resonates uh, and what doesn't, because uh, that helps me uh, be a bit changed. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.